to the Bed Night Lunch Podcast, a podcast where we delve into the unseen history and folklore of Carboneer. For each episode, we invite you to sit down and enjoy a nice bed night lunch while we take a journey back through history. Now, here are your hosts, Preston Griffin, Caitlin Clark, Caitlin Head, Sarah Clark, and myself, Noah Green. On today's episode of the Bed Night Lunch Podcast, we're going to be discussing a huge figure in Carboneer's history, Mr. Philip Henry Goss. So Philip Henry Goss was an English naturalist, and he was born in Worcester, the 6th of April in 1810, and he lived all the way up till the 23rd of August in 1888. So I feel like it's important to discuss why Philip Henry Goss was important to Carboneer specifically. Yeah, in 1827, he sailed to Newfoundland to serve as a clerk in the Carboneer premises of Slade, Elson, and Co., and he was the first to organize and categorize entomology. Right. So, Sarah, what does entomology actually mean? Basically, entomology is the study of insects. Phil Van Goss was really prominent in fields such as entomology, but also in ornithology and marine biology. So, while Phil Van Goss was here in Carboneer, he actually worked on this um, unpublished book, which was the Entomologia Terranovae. Uh, so, this was basically chronic- chronicling the insect life of Newfoundland, and he did that here in Carboneer. He actually illustrated the whole book and it has well over 250 paintings within the book. And besides that work, Philip Henry Goss also published a piece called Omphalos, or an attempt to untie the geological knot. So this work really encapsulates a lot of what Philip Henry Goss was about, which is religion and science kind of intertwined. So the entire argument of this book was that fossil evidence is actually just evidence of a creator making us appear as if we've been here longer than we actually have. And the word omphalos actually comes from the Greek term for navel, which adheres to the argument that Adam's navel was actually created to make human ancestry appear older than it actually was. And that really is a reoccurring theme in Gauss's work. He really covers the whole uh, extreme religious beliefs even, and kind of tries to intertwine that with actual naturalism. I find it really interesting how he was like the first one to really categorize anything just around local, especially here in Carboneer. Mm. And it's actually really cool too because Philip Henry Gass used to go out on Carboneer Island with John Ellison's son and they used to actually look for butterflies and chase them. And this is where it actually sparked his interest to begin a career in entomology. And for someone who was really so successful in basically everything he went into, it's really interesting to see how he got his start here. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to discuss um, how he got his start here in Carboneer. Uh, so Philip came over from England when he was just 17 years old to come work as a clerk here in Carboneer. Uh, Slade, Elson & Co. was kind of like the big uh, merchants at the time. Uh, they actually owned the land where John Work would later put his uh, premises. And to tie back into the religious thing we talked about earlier, uh, Philip Henry Goss actually like underwent his religious conversion here in Carboneer. Uh, he briefly returned to England in 1832 and then he had a, on the uh, voyage there he underwent a religious experience that was uh, basically kind of determined the rest of the course of his life. When he returned to Carboneer he joined the Methodist Society and while he was here he became friends with an immigrant couple from Liverpool, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jacques who had an important influence on uh, basically the development of his religious views. And it was with uh, the Joxes that he actually left Newfoundland 
That was in 1835, and he went to settle in Lower Canada for some time. Hmm. I think that was about the time where he actually tried to start a commune. When he, when he left Newfoundland to go try and farm, I think it was in, in Compton, in Lower Canada, yeah. which, is, which is in Quebec. Um, farming, obviously, was not his strong suit, failed entirely. After this, they, I think they were the two uh, religious friends he tried to start that commune with, which also did not yeah. go well. Yeah, it was with the Jacques's, and he tried to set up this kind of agricultural uh, cooperative. That was their big plan. They actually bought this like farm that was 110 acres for uh, $100 altogether. Um, but that was pretty much a doomed attempt. Uh, <laughs> none of them had any farming experience, and the land was really poor. So for someone who's led such an interesting life, I think it's really, really interesting to look at his life chronologically. Mm -hmm. So after this failed commune, failed farm, he actually went to Alabama, right? Yep. Uh, so he visited Alabama um, and he got a position there uh, at a school in the village of Mount Pleasant, uh, which is just north of Claiborne, but his stay there was very unhappy. Um, basically, uh, Goss didn't agree with how uh, widespread the abuse of slaves was in Alabama at this time. Mm. And he was particularly upset by the attitude of the local Methodist community, which he was very closely involved with, of course, uh, because they very strongly defended slavery. So he quickly decided to leave Alabama and went back to England for some time. Uh, so when Goss arrived in England, he actually applied to the Methodist Church to train as a full-time evangelist, but they turned him down because of his age, because he was still fairly young at this time. To be able to elaborate on what an evangelist is? Right, yeah, so an evangelist is anyone who wants to convert someone to their own faith, essentially, and usually done so by public preaching. And after his rejection, he moved to London, and he lived in Drury Lane, and during that time, he was really desperate for money, he was really poor at the time, and so he went around the streets selling his paintings, and while things were really looking bad for him, at, towards the end of 1839, his fortunes changed when he took over a small school in Hackney. Uh, so while he was working at this uh, small day school in Hackney, uh, one of his manuscripts, which he had written about his Canadian experiences, uh, was accepted by the publisher Van Vorst. Uh, so the book was published the following year, uh, and it was titled The Canadian Naturalist, A Series of Conservations on the Natural History of Lower Canada. Uh, so this book received widespread praise, and although it was written in an archaic format, it basically demonstrated a freshness um, in terms of literature. It's also very important today as it reveals that Goss um, had a very practical grasp of the importance of conservation, which was well far ahead of his time. Like Nobody cared about conservation when Goss mm. was writing. I think it's also really interesting to note that within all of his writings, as religious as Goss was, and no matter how much he would state his beliefs, when he looked at other authors, which he actually had contact with people like Darwin, yes, and he, yeah. he actually, his, uh, his work Amphilos, which I mentioned earlier, was uh, released, I think it was two years before Darwin's On the Origin of Species. But you can find records of Goss saying that he doesn't uh, discount what Darwin has to say. So for someone who was very known, I'd even say fanatical. He was very accepting and progressive for somebody at his time. Yeah, it's actually really interesting that he and Darwin were such good friends. Right? With such, like, opposing black and white Yeah, views. they were on very different ends of the spectrum, but they remained really good friends for a long time. Mm. 
And I, I think, again, that's, that's why I find it especially interesting that on topics such as slavery and conservation of wildlife at the time, that he was, he was such a, 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 like a trailblazer in those departments. Yeah, Goss was super progressive for his time mm -hmm. in a lot of different areas. Uh, so after his success with this book, uh, Goss actually left London in October of 1844. Uh, so he went aboard the ship, the Caroline, where he headed for Jamaica. Uh, basically in Jamaica, he intended to work as a collector for the dealer, Hugh Cumming. Um, he spent about 18 months on the island and he considered this to be the happiest period of his life. He referred to it as a vacation. And although this entire time we've been talking about him as if he was exclusively an entomologist, he was actually known as the father of Jamaican ornithology. Uh, unfortunately, Goss left Jamaica in June of 1846. Uh, when he returned to London, he set about writing uh, his work on Jamaican ornithology. Uh, so the result of this was a trilogy of books, uh, the first being The Birds of Jamaica, uh, the second was Illustrations to the Birds of Jamaica, and the third one was A Naturalist Sojourn in Jamaica. Uh, so these, the, his last book, uh, A Naturalist Sojourn in Jamaica, is considered to be his finest work. Um, he's, he's still remembered uh, for his work in Jamaica. I want to talk about Goss's kind of little foray into marine biology. Uh, so in the years following his time in Jamaica, he produced a succession of super successful books, um, which were on nat natural history. Um, but basically, after that, he kind of had a little bit of a breakdown in his health, and he was advised to leave London for the country, as a lot of people were in the 1800s. Uh, so in early 1852, he settled in Torquay. Then later that year, he moved to Ilfracombe. Uh, so it was in Ilfracombe that he wrote A Naturalist Rambles on the Devonshire Coast, which was published in 1853. Uh, so this brought to the public the science of marine biology. And it was also partly responsible for the seashore craze of the mid-Victorian period. Hmm. I find it really interesting to know that he was also the one who coined the term aquarium. Yeah, in May of 1853, he actually helped to establish the first public aquarium in Regent's Park. And then later that year, he constructed one of the first domestic glass aquariums. Uh, and he basically, he published the book entitled The Aquarium. And that kind of triggered a second craze to sweep through Victorian society when people were really into aquariums. So it's kind of interesting to think that somebody from Carbonier who got their start here uh, had a hand in all this like amazing mm. stuff. He definitely created such a, a weirdly household name mm. for like an aquarium is such a uh, like a simple normal thing to us now. But it's yeah. interesting to think how that came from someone from our town. Well, I mean, I'm sure most of us have had. Uh, little tiny aquariums in our home growing up, but we never mm. knew that it was coined by somebody who had their start here in Carbonier. Yeah, the, the term aquarium actually comes from the Latin root aqua, meaning water, with the suffix arium, meaning a place for relating to. And although Philip Henry Goss coined the term, it wasn't fully developed until 1850 when the chemist Robert Warrington explained that the plants in the water actually created enough oxygen to support animals. So Goss was basically considered the leading popularizer of natural history in England. He had a very successful time after uh, the aquarium. However, his life wasn't free of tragedy. In April of 1856, uh, his wife, Emily Goss, uh, discovered she had breast cancer. Uh, so they spent a lot of time deliberating on this and praying about it. Uh, and then they opted for treatment by the American physician, Jesse Weldon Fell. 
Uh, so Fell basically claimed to have discovered a uh, non-surgical cure for this disease, which of course there is no disease, there is no cure for breast cancer, so that proved to be disastrous. And on the 10th of February in 1857, Emily unfortunately died after a lot of suffering. Uh, Goss wrote about this and he kind of experienced uh, a bit of anger towards God, and this was kind of something that really shaped the rest of his life a bit. It was, I think it was actually in the months following Emily's death that that, that work on flows actually began. Mm -hmm. And even though that book essentially failed, both financially and intellectually, uh, it's really his calling card. It's, it's really what he's remembered by most. So yeah, Goss actually wrote Omphalus after he became very alarmed by the extent that um, many other scientists were taking developmental theory. Um, he, however, he didn't really have any, he couldn't deny the scientific evidence that indicated that the Earth was far older than uh, had previously been believed. Uh, so his response to this was to publish Omphalus. And I think after that initial just flop of the book, he said that he was just wild, wildly misunderstood, but it really did take a huge impact to his reputation. Yeah, it was probably true that people had misunderstood him. Um, See, so basically, it was pretty clear that he never intended to defend that people take a very narrow, literal interpretation of uh, the book Genesis. Uh, that wasn't what he intended to do. Uh, but basically, after this, the damage to his reputation had already been done, and he was kind of ruined a little bit. Uh, so the book was a huge financial lo financial loss. Um, but he took this uh, with uh, great, took it with good humor, and he was very stoic about it. Um, on the eighth of May in 1869, he instructed his publisher. Uh, to remainder the book and wrote, Will you please arrange it? They will probably offer you as an old fox more than one whom they consider a goose. Philip Henry Gass never actually published much on entomology after that, and in 1857 he moved to Sandhurst St. Mary Church. Uh, he actually established an independent chapel in Four Street, and he then ministered there with a con congregation of about 100. And he did this for three decades. And eventually in 1860, he married Eliza Brightwin. So Eliza was known as a very kind woman. She shared an interest in natural history. And she was known as a very skilled watercolorist. And in 1864, she received a large inheritance and gave Goss the financial security he had previously lacked and needed. So Goss was often misunderstood. Uh, he was described as having a harsh and unfeeling outward appearance. However, he was also considered to be a man with good heart and was actually very kind and sensitive. Often optimistic, he was quoted as saying, hope has always been strong in me. Uh, so Goss had a lot to be optimistic about. I mean, he had such a successful uh, life. He's very, his, he's lived on uh, past uh, his time. Uh, he had very good health and he was a physically strong man, but in uh, March of 1888, uh, Goss unfortunately suffered a heart attack. Uh, he was lucky enough to recover from his heart attack, but from then on his health kind of gradually declined. Uh, and he unfortunately passed away at his home on the 23rd of August that year. Uh, he was buried in the Torquay Cemetery. Yeah, and following Goss's death, his son actually published a typical Victorian biography entitled The Life of Philip Henry Goss. And 
So Edmund suggested that his father was a scientific crackpot, or a, a quote-unquote Bible-soaked romantic. And again, quote-unquote, a stern and repressive father, and even a pulpit-thumping Puritan throwback to the 17th century. And although modern editors of this story have rejected the portrait that Edmund paints, and even uh, other authors such as Henry James remarked that Edmund had a genius for inaccuracy, uh, he still stands by his father being a cruel, uh, austere man. Uh, so Edmund actually uh, tried to revise his material, um, and he, so he published his notable memoir anonymously first, and that was entitled Father and Son. In, uh, he published that in 1907. Um, it has never gone out of print in well over 100 years of it being published. Uh, so Father and Son actually kind of uh, has an interesting bit of a journey. Uh, it was adapted by playwright Dennis Potter into the television play uh, Where Adam Stood, which was broadcast originally on BBC One in 1976. Uh, so Philip Henry Goss was played by Alan Bedell, and reviewers uh, said that the play portrayed Goss much more sympathetically than Edmund did in his book. Uh, Father and Son was also again later adapted for BBC Radio 4 in 2005. And I think that we're so lucky that a person like this is so well documented. Mm -hmm. Especially, again, calling back to the fact that he got his entire start for the rest of his prominent career in science and religion and history, that he started right here in our town. Yeah, I think he's such an underrated person in our history. Like, I didn't learn about Philip Henry Goss until I started to work at the Railway Museum here in Carbonaire. Mm. And I really like the idea, too, that, like, nowadays, Carbonaire Island, you don't really go out there. Like, it's not a thing to do. Mm. And he used to just go out there for fun and go for picnics and stuff. I really yeah. like the idea that he actually explored on the island. That is an interesting type of really intertwined with Carbonaire Island. I think yeah. that's really interesting. It's one of the uses of Carbonaire Island that you wouldn't expect. And, like, back in the day, you used to go to Carbonaire Island on a daily basis. Like, it was a thing. And now, like, I don't say someone's been on that island since the dig in 2016. <laughs> yeah, that was probably about the last time. That was probably the last time. And inter interesting enough, there is one fact that sticks with me from the Railway Museum that uh, still out on Carbonier Island today, there's a particular kind of flower that grows that attracts the butterflies like you wouldn't imagine. So you still see huge, huge just groups of them out there. Yeah, yeah and Philip Henry Goss is probably the first person to really realize that. So even though uh, he had such a long, rich life, I really hope that we encapsulated it well enough. And I think this will conclude our podcast, so I'll give it off to Caitlin to make our closing remarks. We would like to send out a sincere thank you to all of our listeners for joining us this week on the Bed Night Lunch podcast. If you guys are interested in hearing more from us, be sure to keep an eye on the Carb Town and Carbonary Facebook page and check out all of our other social media. I've been Caitlin Clark. I've been Preston Griffin. I've been Noah Green. I've been Sarah Clark. And I've been Caitlin Head. And this is the Midnight Lunch Podcast.